Psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. I am joined today by Justin and Justin is the current CEO of HIF Health Insurance Fund of Australia. They're not for profit National Australian Health Insurer. Justin has extensive experience in the private health insurance and financial services industries and prior to becoming the chief executive of HIF in May of 2020, he had spent approximately eight years working in senior management positions at Bupa. Uh, before moving into the private health insurance industry, Justin had held several senior executive and leadership roles across the financial services sector um, involving including Commonwealth Bank, National Australian Bank and ANZ Bank. Uh, he holds an EMBA from Australian Grad School of Management, a graduate certificate in Sustainable Indigenous Partnerships from Charles Darwin, uh, and he's completed the Social Entrepreneurship Programme with the INSEAD in Singapore. But I suppose most germane, obviously, to our discussion today is, of course, the fact that HIF are set to be the first Australian health insurance insurer, to my knowledge, to, to offer health insurance cover for the therapeutic application of psychedelics for their members. And... This is not without precedent because HIF was also the first major Australian health fund to publicly declare support for medicinal cannabis treatments and offer rebates to members through its partnership with Western Australians Little Green Pharma, which is one of Australia's leading lights in the provision of GMP-grade medicinal cannabis products. So as as uncomfortable as it is to sit through your own bio, <laughs> I just wanted to say a big thanks, Justin, Thank you. for uh, joining me today. Um, before we get into it, um, you know, sort of what has brought me here today, I would just like to double click a wee bit on some of your sort of educational background and that postgrad stuff. So sure. the, the notion of social entrepreneurship is something which comes up across the board, but I'm noticing more of an emergence in the psychedelic space, but it's, it's quite a sort of poorly defined term. Mm-hmm. So how do you think of and define social entrepreneurship and, and like how did that come into your, <laughs> your world? Well, it came into my world because I had a really specific interest in what it would be like to study and apply, you know, principles from a commercial environment in in an entity that would be doing good, particularly at the coalface on, on many issues that social entrepreneurship um, looks at. And, and the course at INSEAD, I think they do it in France and Singapore, was, was sort of one of the better ones. And so I, uh, I shot off and, and did that for a week. And... Uh, and got to experience probably with 80% of the attendees um, real live what we would call social entrepreneurial ventures mm-hmm. um, in real life at different area, at different uh, times of maturity in their models, doing good in places that, that you know you just look at and you, and, and, and you really are impressed and feel like there's good being done in the world. And I suppose the course in its primary purpose was how do you take those entities and continue to offer sustainability within their model mm-hmm. and what are the disciplines, frameworks and choices that, that get made within that environment so the good work can continue beyond just the good idea phase. Sure, so it's like almost like incubating good ideas yeah, and to and putting, get to scale. putting quite commercial rigour and discipline to the sustainability without losing sight of the... You know, not-for-profit charity and or, or, or very socially aware purpose that, that, you know, the particular ventures might have. Mm. And has this always been something like a through line for you, always want to see the social element of, you know, trying to join those two things together, namely like social improvement and then the leveraging of the principles of capitalism and business and scaling? Like how, how do those two meet in your Well, your I think mental? my own journey and maturity to to understanding you know <laughs> what I was doing particularly in the financial services industry and and you know all, all respect to how those models of operation work and, and the good that they can and do do but it, it sort of lent me as as sort of time went by to sort of want to understand you know how the world works better for those areas of innovation and those areas of doing good don't have the, the the massive amounts of money and 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 visibility mm. yet you know we rely on these things to to improve how we live and particularly for those that are 
less fortunate than, than you know, growing up and, and living in first world countries like Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as examples, I mean, when I was at the course, there was a doctor that was helping, you know, improve the, the, the strike rate on, on deaths of mothers giving birth in, in, in central and remote parts of Africa. Um, then there was water salination projects in Southeast Asia, and then there was a, a, a lady from Korea who was really doing a lot of work around what is an evolving and, and emerging, if not now, current issue around clothing and the impact that has on rubbish and the, I suppose, uh, issue of where you store clothes that are no longer wanted and how's that polluting the world and and it's an enormous effect on the world and just never even having a clue about that so I was surrounded by some wonderfully talented and passionate and driven people and and I was probably only one of three or four that was there from a slightly more commercial background that wasn't actually in situ doing something good yeah (laughs) so uh, I would imagine that provides a sort of I mean I'm trying I'm I'm thinking of a parallel and we'll obviously be delving deeper into this but the world of how you know psychedelics is now hmm. going to meet the various entities whether they be you know insurance houses you know obviously uh, venture capitalists you know then we're moving more into the applied health sphere which is certainly something we'll need to talk about yep um but that type of perspective of say a commercial oversight to something which is a good idea but it's how do you then get that into the into the mainstream and how does that work within any sort of cultural container? So there's certainly a lot of parallels, and I would imagine that type of skill set is, is going to become a useful perspective for you in your sort of nexus position as a CEO of a national health insurer, mm. who's also now starting to move into the world of you know exploring emerging therapies, which is I think the way you guys sort of generally define it. So um, to sort of jump more you know a little bit to that, it would be useful I think to delineate HIF from you know the other insurance companies because I understand that you guys are, are, are members you know members benefit like a not-for-profit correct uh, insurance I- agency and by the way for listeners like oh, there's no conflict of interest I don't I'm not I'm not a shareholder in HF because they don't have any no we don't so, we have members only uh, yeah so it's not like I'm, this is him some sort of weird infomercial but I would like to get <laughs> some deeper understanding of how you know because I see what it says on the website and the various sources but what what is the difference you know when they're yeah okay so crudely we we are owned by our members and we're governed by a structure that um considers you know a a group of those members in how we operate the fund we are strictly not for profit so again we don't pay tax but we don't distribute um surpluses outside of the, the the assets that the members ultimately own um yeah probably half if not a good two-thirds of the health insurance players in Australia operate in a similar fashion, um, but on the smaller to medium scale of, of those. And then you do see at the other end the listed organisations like Medibank and NIB, which are shareholder-owned, and, and you know they operate as any listed entity would in, you know, in, in the benefit of you know their customers, sure, but also their, their shareholders because they've got a, a duty to do that under, under, under their, their constitution and laws. And then you've got some sort of middle ground uh, in the industry which is sort of privately owned and, 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 and examples like Booper where um, you know, they, they wouldn't be listed in, in a sense like some of the other funds but they're probably for a surplus or for a profit that is privately distributed with their, with their private ownership structures. Um, and in their case, I think that's that's London-based. But generally speaking, the um, the mix of the industry is, is is quite diverse in 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 the economic and and governance models and ownership models. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. We represent obviously what we think is the pure end of end of that model, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know we look to make what we would call healthy, sustainable surpluses that we reinvest back into the business model and our members and in some cases that would look like um, process improvement member experience improvement or investments that we think might might be uh, generating future value for our members as well as you know the here and now of regulatory requirements keeping our capital at, at a sufficient level to ensure our regulator our prudential regulator APRA is is satisfied that we're running the business with with limited risk mm-hmm. so there'd be some amount of the money which would 
just perennially have to go back into working in and across the business to streamline and improve things. Yeah, yeah. Now, to make this sort of sort of join the dots in my head, whenever you had announced, and that's how we sort of came in contact, and we've spoken on a panel at, at a recent conference uh, together, um, I was moderating and you were with a few, few former guests, um, I was sort of wondering, why... Why is this CEO able to make this move, whereas the other C-suites in town don't seem to either know or be able to? So I'm wondering, does your model make it such that make it sort of any way easier for you to move more into the psychedelic space in a, in a more exploratory way than say the, the firms at the other end of that spectrum you just outlined? Or yeah, look, I think I think that has something to do with it. Yeah, I also think it's about the values and and the the level of conservatism that the organisation wants to portray in, in the marketplace. Um, having always worked for much larger entities, uh, I don't feel like we're in any way um, overly controversial or out on a limb. I think what we've been able to do at HOF is clearly understand that we represent choice and access for our members and there's a growing need for certain services now and into the future and we're not geniuses. We haven't figured that out. You can see that I mean, and, and society can see that for themselves. Mental health being a, a very serious one. And we also know that better solutions need, need to be um, available to, to members, patients and the community to see that, that, that outlook improve. And if we have to, you know, look at all options, then it'd be ignorant not to consider what emerging yeah. therapies provide. Yeah. And so I just think it's good due good diligence. Business. It's yeah. just good business to understand what might be coming and how uh, how we could play a role in that. If our purpose is to create options, choices and access for our members so they're healthier, then to me that, that that's actually um, doing the job that, that our members want us to do. And, uh, and we're probably less concerned about the stigmatisation and some of the, you know, the crude sort of referencing to things like psychedelics that, that come up in general conversation. We try to sort of take a more mature lens around, well, what does this really mean and where's it going? Rather than, than you know, sticking to, to, you know, headlines that, you know, that it, yeah, as we both know, are unhelpful and, and, you know, not realistic around what's actually happening in this space, yeah. particularly research and clinical development. I mean, and I don't, I think, you know, from a sort of science journalism perspective, I think that, um, and I'm I'm not immune from this, uh, getting, you know, one's knickers in a twist about, you know, elaborate, you know, hyperbolic reporting. I mean, it's not specific to emerging therapies like psychedelics. Let's say people who work in stem cell research or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, you know, the sort of uh, oil and gas industry, what well, doesn't matter, any science related topic, you know, a science journalist gets a, a you know, gets an inch and then they make a mile of a headline that's that's pretty much yeah and I, i've been asked the question well is this yeah. just headline hunting yeah you know crudely and i'm okay well does it benefit that that people want to associate you know a, a, a newspaper article or, or a small segment on the news with hif because we're talking about this topic rather than talking about topics that are less interesting to to the media in their 24-hour news cycle well yeah it probably is but we've been consistent. We're not jumping on a bandwagon. We've, you know, invested our time and effort into understanding where 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 we are in Australia, as where as the world is too in in these areas. And uh, and if you know, media outlets want to speak to us about that, that's great. I'd love for them to speak to us about a whole range of issues, but yeah. I can't control that. Sure. Yeah. They just they 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 focus on what they focus on, and so I suppose. From what I'm getting about, you know, the comparison to the different health insurance companies, it does sound like, from your eye, Justin, at the sort of CEO level, it, it is more, the sort of driving force is probably more cultural than logistical, because what I'm hearing you say is, you know, there is potential return on investment, and these there's an alignment with, you know, ethical outcomes and fiscal outcomes, really, potentially. Yes. Um, it would be not lack of due diligence to not at least you know consider that amongst all other things, and given our maybe place in the marketplace, our our background, our where we've come from, you know, our sort of the genesis of, of this company, uh, it's just we're maybe under less cultural constraints than the, the very conservative yeah, no, organisations. That, that's absolutely fair to, fair to say. Yeah. If I was in in a larger 
for profit entity, then then you know there might be some views that you know the that the CEO should be less vocal around these sorts of emerging um, therapy type conversations. I think that's unfortunate. And I think that lends itself to the culture of that organisation and where they're going because in a heartbeat, if there's legitimacy and money to be made in anything then related to good health comes, health outcomes for their members, every health insurer is going to be doing it in a heartbeat. Yeah. And I, I even said this to, to my partner, we're not geniuses. We can see what's happening overseas. And you know, whether we like it or not in Australia, we are always going to probably be led by innovation that occurs mostly overseas, particularly at social scale. Um, you know, we're a great country in sort of solving great little unique problems and, and, and being, you know, you know, quite innovative in that space. But for, for things like, you know, medical innovation and, uh, and other sort of, you know, social and community type things, we're going to look overseas as well as ourselves and see what's coming. I would even say, you know, my perspective being I'm an Australian, but I didn't, wasn't born here. Uh, I'd even say, folk, like sharpen that even up more to America, broadly speaking, because there are a lot of cultural imports from America that you True. just don't see. In, and even in other places in the West, you know, when I, I came here, I was like, holy shit, estate agents advertise on bins. You know, they only like, it seems like a such a little fast, you know, facile point, but there's a notion of Osmerica as a sort of cultural place. And I feel like for good and for ill, like you say, you know, there's an inertia that has started abroad that, that is going to come here. And so it's not a case of if it's going to come, it's a case of how it modulates with the various entities who are going to be, you know, have to yeah. interface with it, like, like uh, you know, the private sector and, and, and insurance. Yeah, and the credibility of, of what does yeah. emerge here. <clears throat> I know that there's enough bureaucracy in Australia to make sure that anything that does come here will be checked a thousand times and, and, yeah. and you know, that's that's all part of a, a thorough process. So no criticism there, but I do think we, we need to take stock of if something has been developed, if something is showing good, credible clinical and, and, and academic progress in other parts of the world, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to we need to embrace the learning utilize you know what what local standards that, that are required to, to also include include what that means for an Australian market but I don't think we should be starting again and 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 Australia is a conservative sort of environment where they tend to sort of like to start again on on good ideas um, but you know this is a journey and one that if HIF is talking to our members about what might be coming what we would do if things did eventuate this way and helping the education, the awareness, and the legitimacy behind sharing clinical and, and academic, uh, you know, in, insights to to at least be discussed and, and shared. I think that's a great thing. And if other health funds want to focus on other things, then we hope they'll jump on board when when it might be more yeah when it's when it's it's more suitable to them. And I think that's exactly what'll happen. And you know what. Other health funds will lead in other areas of, of health insurance reform and or product and, and, and customer sort of innovation and we'll follow. Exactly. Yeah, so everyone all, everyone has a role. We're all early adopters for something and we were chatting off mic about we're both big fans of Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. And so I've had that experience of, you know, you think you're the cool kid with this new band and then one year to the next, everybody likes that band. From looking at it from the other perspective, it can sort of wrinkle a bit if you're an early adopter and then everyone starts to like the thing that you like and you have to almost say to yourself, this is really going to date me, but the the album has from the CD that I had last year hasn't changed anymore because all of these people like it. So we almost have to be <laughs> not too precious about being early adopters and, and welcome new people into the space totally. for that reason because they'll have other innovations to bring which HIF or whoever isn't going to have even yeah, conceived of. Yeah, and our of. scale lends itself to, to yeah. uh, obviously um, relying on, on some of the bigger players, investing more and doing things that that we will piggyback and leverage and uh, and we're proud to say that that's, that's our role too. Um, and, and, and I think it's absolutely incumbent on, on, you know, the whole industry of health, not just the private health insurance industry, to see good ideas shared and rolled out uniformly. So by no means is it successful because we're the only player that, that, that might play a, uh, you know, a, an entry role or, or a formative role in this for it to be accessible for the community at large and, and successful for, you know, the cost profile, the clinical profile, the health profile of all Australians and everyone has to be in it. And that's success even if, you know, that we you know, ultimately share 
like they say, success has many mothers or fathers or parents. Yeah. We're happy with that. Yeah. So we to, we've been talking a bit more sort of like industry facing. Let's bring it back to the to the high street. So you know, HIF average Australian Joe. You know, if they're listening, how is this gonna? What what do you envisage? this will look like you know from a sort of um a member's perspective what 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 might a general an actual pathway be into this being a reality for one of your members yeah well i think um there'll be a lot of water on the bridge but you know if i could sort of paint a picture it would be when when you've uh, when you've been identified through clinical and 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 appropriate medical um devices that, that say that this is appropriate treatment option for you, then we facilitate access and the choice of, of how, how and when that option is provided. Um, hopefully that's also included in the funding model that, that, that um, you know, health insurers are, are governed by under the Private Health Insurance Act, because obviously that, that then makes it feasible too um, on scale. And so if we, if we play that role and our members get a better experience, and better access and choice to emerging therapies when when they are legitimised through through the medical cycle, then that would be one. I think the second part is could we play a role in in broadening that op- opportunity and that value chain to include, you know, real management of that health scenario in support of the GP or support of the psychiatrist or support of the member, and that could possibly look like uh, aligned wellness and and other options so what that could look like too is that we may play a supportive or or investment role in you know the therapeutic environments without taking the clinical responsibility and and the reason i say that is that we're not hif is certainly not a clinical organization we don't have that skill set we don't want to develop that skill set and we're not fans of vertical alignment one part partially because of our scale we don't have the size to really make a difference in a vertical alignment but the 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 beauty behind providing access and choice is that, you know, the peripheral models around where that therapy takes place and how it actually manifests and who manages, you know, the care around that particular journey, I think is is a role that health insurers could play. And, and I'm keen to stay away from, you know, any clinical areas because that's the expertise we want to leave to the specialists, mm-hmm. the doctors, the psychiatrists, the nurses, you know, the psychologists, all the clinicians that would be involved. And then lastly, if we can turn you know, chronic illnesses like PTSD and, and, and you know, treatment-resistant um, depression and other things, and we can turn the current model on its head where, you know, you're spending 20, 30 years of, of treatment that doesn't really go anywhere at a huge cost to society and to the individual. And, you know, uh, imagine a world where one or two interventions at a much low, lower cost profile with a much higher clinical success outcome I mean, you're talking about billions of dollars over lots of years that the industry itself saves. Yeah. I, I and don't. It's got to be good for everyone. I, I don't like to be particularly, you know, hyperbolic about the the costs, and I also feel that there's something sometimes lost the interstitial bits when you, you know, we we have to I get from a, like a large scale, bring this down into you know quantitative amounts of money that are is costing the economy or or whatever. I don't really love to put that at the superordinate place, but it is such an extreme expense yep. by even the most conservative estimates. And I don't necessarily, so you know, it certainly does bear mentioning. I I think that some of the estimates for what mental illness, as distinct from say mental per health, mental illness costs the, um, you know, fiscally costs the country. I think it, the, the estimates are, are, are widely underestimated because they just there's, the <laughs> metrics doubt. are so limited, really. Um, and you know, to just bring that back to earth, if you say, what does it cost? Forget about the emotional cost, which is obviously more important. What does it cost a community for a twenty-one-year-old gay to kill himself? It's like you can't quantify that, but whatever no. you do, it this sort of long-term implications which will have an impact on inverted coach GDP you cannot measure their extreme you know and I suppose that's coming from a clinician who works at the coalface with some people Absolutely. with very complex the, the 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 cost of things I don't think the average you know the person the Australian doesn't really understand and so this is where I want to say thank you to you because the, <laughs> I don't think 
I don't think the other health insurers really understand the potential cost savings from. No, they probably don't, but they understand the economics of reducing the cost to care for members and patients in the community in the manner that we're doing today, particularly around significant mental health episodes where. You know, and, and and this is my non-medical sure. views. You know, SSRIs probably play a, a you know a reasonably effective role in lower, more moderate sort of grade issues, but the ones that cost society, the one that's cost families and communities, and of course cost you know the government uh, the most money in the health system are those more chronic features, and there there is no genuine. Uh, what what I would call solution that we can rely on as a as an overarching community, mm-hmm. and so if we even think there's a chance that something could emerge and be proven, then it's incumbent upon us to research. Oh, absolutely, it. absolutely, and and you know I do I do feel that our ability to educate and share learnings to to help those that may not have you know that that insight yet. Um, is part of the, the journey, and whether that's with other health insurers, whether that's with medical professionals, frontline GPs, other specialists, I think there's a whole range of ignorance across all all areas that, that further learning and education is only going to improve the, the outlook. Absolutely. I, I wonder, um, you know, the piece that I keep coming back to, and you've mentioned a few times, and you mentioned it during the, the panel at MedCon, was the importance of education of frontline providers so GPS I think would be a you know a real modal example but certainly not the only ones um, what and, and you I appreciate that you guys want to make a very clear cut between you know we are not going to sort of you know put our noses in the work the clinical world in this emerging mm-hmm. research but there does seem to be this pressing need and that was certainly what my takeaway from the conference was that doctors and medical professionals were very keen and hungry to know more but there wasn't a strong critical mass of working knowledge of any of this. So, I mean, where does HIF and like how did how did the people at the front line get more information, and what role would say somebody like HIF have in that? You know? Yeah, yeah, good question. I, I don't necessarily know the answer because you know we have to respect the role of, of, of frontline medicine and, and the professionals, and you know, particularly GPs in preventative health. I, I think are, 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 are crucial. And if we think about reactive and preventative health, particularly in the mental health space, um, we, we want the GPs to play a primary role. Um, we, we would love to see what was possible in the funding of those cycles because, you know, you can read plenty of press at the moment where we're running out of GPs. You know, they're not being able to make a, a reasonable living for their skill set and for the community's desires to have access. Um, there, there has to be different models. And... No disrespect, but I hear a lot of associations and and collectives talk about reform and have think tanks, and oh, I don't see any change. I'd love to see a few pilots or a few interventions that actually start to give us insights on on changing that dial. And I think when you find when you find people really trying to work together outside of that political sphere, you you will see genuine desire to learn and, and understand what's possible. And I think we just need to keep supplementing that um, and putting our hand up and saying, look, if you want to do something quite bespoke and see if this works, if we want to learn more, that's a role HIF can play because we're smaller enough to probably be a, a good target for um, pilots and or, yeah. or, or, or interventions that may not necessarily be approved at scale. And therefore, the learning process can occur. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Great. It's, it's sort of, uh, as you're saying that, Justin, it's I'm thinking. The Sorry, that's my Siri telling me <laughs> something that they've found. Apologies. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, the the, the the Australian sort of the way with the, the landscape looks, you know, quite literally, is I, I don't see that that would be all that difficult to say. This is maybe where I'm talking through my hat, but you know, here is a suburb with X amount of people. You know, the demographics pretty much matched this suburb over here. You know, whatever the ratio is of you know GPs to, to people, it sort of matches roughly. We're going to take this bunch of young GPs. We're going to psychoeducate. We're going to educate them in this particular sphere, um, which wouldn't certainly be some like a peripheral uh, peripheral uh, co- point of contact with their clients. Like I would say, your average GP, twenty to thirty percent of their 
you know, face-to-face consults involve some mental health component at the very least, (laughs) if not the primary ideology, certainly something in the mix. So it's not like they'd be saying, oh, I I never see anything to do with that and say, look, if you guys want some training in this um, and then compare outcomes for those chronic health conditions that you mentioned, and I I would be quietly confident that if it was well-structured and pointed and and had no uh, dog in the fight as to the outcome to see what the long-term outcomes would be, um, just having a, a new school of, I think maybe that's where it's at, new school of young doctors who have insensibility and interest in the field of mental health to avoid that brain drain and burnout that sometimes comes when they just are in the trenches for so long, feel that they're rocking up to earthquakes with dustpan and brushes, don't feel they have new tools to work with. Um, so I've got to think that it's got to be quite demoralising for people in those spaces. So even... Even the hope of knowing a little bit, having more tools to, to bring to the fore would be a real you know, benefit yeah, well, for the profession. That's what we've, got. we've got the hope of it today. Yeah. There, there is credible hope. Yeah, totally. and, and you know whether it's you and I talking about that hope or, yeah. or even understanding how um, you know, the processes will flow on and, and, and what credibility will ultimately come into sure. what, what, can, what services can be provided. Yeah. And we're not double-guessing. Yeah. We're saying... Let's continue to see the research. Let's continue to learn and understand what's happening all around the world. Mm-hmm. And and if there's a pathway to uh, treatment for emerging therapies like psychedelics and, and that's been proven, then that's what we're supporting is that yeah. continual journey. And, and if there's a line in the sand that says no Doesn't or work. yes yeah. and, it's, and it's had its thorough processes mm-hmm. applied, yeah. fair enough. We're, we're not trying to tell people what must happen. No. We're saying we need to support the clinical, academic and, and bureaucratic processes that allow better tools to be put in the hands of those that can use them. Absolutely. Um, so we sort of looked, projected forward a little bit, you know, what, you know, what might uh, be of use to say a GP in five to ten years' time, something like that. But to maybe go back... Um, I'd love to know the sort of genesis of your of HIF's relationship with Little Green Pharma because, as I've mentioned in the in the initial bio, your your sort of movement more into into psilocybin and we can talk about that. But it's not out of nowhere. Like you guys have had mm. sort of a growing relationship um, in this space. So I'd love to know like the genesis of that story and, and you know how you've got got to here. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, it was probably reinforced to me when when it was early or maybe you know, in that sort of emerging COVID lockdown period and I was watching uh, a Netflix series with Hassan Minaj, uh, I think he called Patriot Act and there was a, an episode on, on medicinal cannabis or cannabis in general and it just reminded me all the stuff that I'd been reading and understood medicinal cannabis particularly to be and what it could offer. And it reinforced the fact to me that, that we've, got a, we've got a solution here that's natural, that, that's been around forever, but actually has an application to so many different potential sort of treatment solutions, be it in, in, in children, be it in, in, in the elderly and palliative care, be it across you know, all, the, all the ailments that you have in adult life. And it's hard to think of you know, one go-to that, that can have so many different applications. And knowing that it was now, um, you know, being well, the the industry was growing from from its approval to be prescribed by by licensed GPs for for treatment. Um, when I landed on um, the the tarmac here at Perth, it was one of the first things I asked our, our product area to just consider what our role was and what we thought might potentially be a, a way to sort of embrace and and, and you know, raise this beyond just, uh, you know, it's very hidden um, uh, area, yeah. And so uh, my, my product and proposition area came back and said there's an organisation called Little Green Farmer and uh, I think they tried to speak to a bigger fund and <laughs> got nowhere and <laughs> said, well, that's the, that's we're the, custom yeah, built yeah. For, for probably a conversation then. And, and as, it, as it turned out, you know, we did our due diligence, they did theirs, and, and there was a real value match on, on why they're in it. Yeah. And admittedly, they're a listed organisation, so they're in it under that structure. Yeah. But the, the, the genuineness to quality and, and the genuineness to education, I, I really found uh, a match for us. 
And so we said, well, how do we work with each other, particularly being a West Australian-based company and us being a predominantly West Australian insurer? And then it evolved from there to the point where we were able to sign a partnership that included continued research at, at arm's length, of course, uh, that included um, opportunities for our members. And what year would that have been when you signed the contract? When it just a- oh, well, that was the first year I was here at Boober, so 2020, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was probably within six months or five months of me starting in the role that that we actually made that sort of progress, and uh, and of course then you know we we really got to understand a lot more about how the industry works, learning from Little Green Farmer, but also bringing our members' feedback and and other insights into the mix, and then of course you know in time everyone's asking the question about well what other emerging therapies are are on the horizon. And Little Green Farmer had done their own work um, and, and sort of you know, moved to, to understand. They'd been sort of having those thought processes in sort of parallel, I assume, to you. You know, they'd been exploring yeah. th- th- how that model could sort of substrate independent, just map on to different substances like psilocybin. You know, if you have the, if you have the anti-seeding the framework. Reset. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Reset, for those listening, the CEO of Reset Mind Sciences, which was a subsidiary of Little Green Farmer, but is now its own separate company. That's yep. Sean Duffy. And they are um, in the process. I don't know where they're at in the cycle, but growing GM like medical grade uh, uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms at an mm. undisclosed location, which I assume will be the source of any potential, you know, therapy that is given, like a pill to be ingested. That's where it will come from. Yeah, uh, and that—that's what you guys would be potentially funding. Is that—is that? Am I right in saying? Well, yeah. Price? If you take a. a if you take a, a very future-focused view, uh, assuming everything's approved and, and legitimate within within the the, the, well, the clinical world, um, if someone to avail of uh, a therapy that included you know, uh, that that type of, of intervention, then we would want to play a role in in funding that. Yeah, and I get. I'm sure you get asked this question, and a nobody knows how long a piece of string is, and and b. You know the pandemic has shown us that the be, you know God laughs at the best made plans. Like mm-hmm. timeframes for again, your average HIF member. I think I need this. I think I'll go through the triage process. You know how far in the future are we projecting that that HIF members will be able to actually avail of this? Are we talking three years, five years? Like what are we? Not, notwithstanding approval processes, yeah, yeah. I think there'd be an appetite and a serious appetite within the community now if it was oh, readily totally. available. So you know, I don't. It is really about the sort of regulatory processes. I think five years is a reasonable There's time frame to think that this 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 will you yeah. know evolve as medicinal cannabis has. You know, very sort of. Um, you know, modest start and 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 probably lack of understanding, you know, more broadly, and that that will um, increase. But I do think we're probably ahead of the curve in the discussion point mm-hmm. than where medicinal cannabis was before it became, yeah, um, sure. you know, legalized for sure. for prescription purposes and and yeah. treatment purposes. So I do think there's probably. Um, well, there's a hope, as there is with this entire entire um, topic, that that sooner rather than later. But yeah. I think five would be. Reasonable, yeah. 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 I think um, I would imagine a lot of stuff which would have taken longer will now be somewhat expedited because of the journey that medicinal cannabis has gone through. You know, Agreed. And hopefully, again, we can leverage international yeah. um, examples of particularly research and, and, and credible sort of, you know, specific you know, regulatory mm-hmm. decisions, you know, that were made in either the US or in mm-hmm. parts of Europe mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the patient's no different in Holland than they are in yeah. Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, we all have a, a, you know, a really growing need for better tools. Yeah. And what do you think, Justin, um, again, I, and I'm, I appreciate that we're in this sort of speculative territory and you've been very clear. It's like we're an insurance agency. We're not, you know, going to like move. We're not going to suddenly start providing doctors and stuff. You know, you're not mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to, you know, walk that, that boundary. No dentists. No dentists. No, don't go near that. Yeah, no. <laughs> psychedelics and dentistry. Yeah. Um, uh, well, actually, as in, incidentally to that, I feel like a lot of the dental phobia that I saw, that's what brought me into this world, was the a manifestation of a, like an epiphenomenon of a much deeper psychological issue. So a lot of is people, that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really, extreme phobias really fall under the realm of just a sort of prominent manifestation of uh, generalized anxiety disorder, post traumatic stress. So you know. 
the Venn diagram of people who are terrified of the dentist and people who have serious mental health issues, of which that you know, it's, 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 it's a fairly overlap. significant overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, a couple of years ago, I think there's <laughs> a friend of mine said this to me yesterday. He's a dentist. He said, "You can be so soon to something that you're basically wrong." And I gave a presentation about how MDMA and its utility in the treatment of severe dental phobia. That was at the International Society of Dental Anxiety Management at the Royal College a couple of years ago, and I think they were just going, what the fuck is that up on there? <laughs> but again, seems silly, but in the future, I really do believe that there's going to have to be an, a logical, chronological approach for different types of people. But when you do talk to researchers and people who sort of have seen what these tools can do, and I, I hasten not to use the word tools, but I, for, for all intents and purposes, sure. they will often... You know, you'll say, okay, what do you think you need to get funded next? And they'll make sensible decisions and see where the culture's at, et cetera, et cetera. But then if you ask them, you know, the kitchen confidential question, if you had a magic wand, what would you actually use this to augment treatment for? And they'll say something wildly different. But you can see that glint in their eye where they're like, I think that actually might really make a huge difference. So sort of speculative research into people who are in fields that have very few tools, um, I think it's reasonable to say, say we're going to make some speculative literature reviews because the treatment outcomes for the current modalities are so poor. And I think that's really what gave a lot of inertia in, the, in you know, Johns Hopkins. The first things that they got started on were palliative care because at the end of the day, they got to do that because the powers that be were like, well, these people are going to die anyway. You know, what's the harm? And then that was a strategic decision in some sense because they knew that the phenomenological outcomes and a lot of the research would globalize when people would start to go, oh, if this could work for my auntie who's terrified, has cancer phobia, I wonder could that work for the generalized anxiety for her husband who is not technically dying, you know, so it's... Yeah, I have no problem with the yeah. means to an end, you know, as long as it's ethical, yeah. um, because, you know, we're never going to satisfy everyone's idiosyncratic sort of questions, concerns, yeah. you know, and, and, and the amount of, you know, misinformation that, that surrounds. I think if you can get an anchor, then, then you know, it's really about, well, how does that lead to a greater good and a greater solution for everyone? Prove it. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, you know, quite resilient to the fact that, that you know, it, uh, it may take many forms. Mm-hmm. And it might, and there's going to, if there aren't a lot of cul-de-sacs and if everybody's finding out that the hypothesis that they thought was going to happen absolutely happened. If that's happening too frequently, then you really have to stop and say, this is agenda-driven, this is not actual exploratory science. You know, So if most things yield don't yield, yield excellent results, we have to start then questioning you know, what's actually behind this. And mm-hmm. that's where the shareholders, I think, becomes a bit of a problem because you know, we need to have we need to understand that as we move forward in all of these different fields, there's going to be an awful lot of cul-de-sacs, and that's just the nature of the beast. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of costs, what do you guys at HAFC as being like a really major cost from a mental health perspective? You know what? What pops up the most for you Yeah, guys? well, look, genuinely speaking, if we had less people in hospital for events that they would prefer themselves not to have to face into and, 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 uh, and, and you know, use as treatment to solve problems, then that's great for us because we pay less out. Um, and so anything that in the preventative space can help reduce hospital admissions whereby, you know, people are dealing with serious health issues that could be avoided. So I think that's one one area. And and that absolutely in the mental health space comes at, you know, earlier treatment and or better chronic and, and, and higher order illness treatment. But I do think the preventative space is going to be really important. I think there's a bridge where we have to, you know, cross the bridge of reactive treatment to get us back to a place where preventative can actually be be the, the driver. I don't think that's here and now. I think reactive is the driver. And, and, totally. And, and it seems so common sense and applies in other fields of medicine without yeah. anyone batting an eyelid, of course, you know. Totally. Yeah. But if we if we look at, at, at you know, the hospitalisation and or, 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 you know, severe treatment episodes within the mental health space, the costs are, are, are significant and growing. And if we can avoid them, then isn't that better for everyone, even if we have more surpluses because of it? Because if we have more surpluses because there's less mental health costs in the system, then hopefully that's because people are suffering less. 
That, that, so and go spend it all on extras and preventative health because we will happily sign those checks every yeah. day. The 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 tolerance and l- let me just, if I can, add a sort of as you're saying that the context the context of psychiatric admissions being really expensive for for you with your CEO's hat on yeah. from a from a familial perspective or from a you know a therapist's perspective an applied clinician's perspective with my hat on. The after effect cost to psychiatric admission, admissions and, and the treatments that you have to put in place to often assuage that experience for people is enormous. You know, yep. it's so the costs of a psychiatric admission that could have been avoided with better preventative care. I don't think people really fully appreciate how massive that is and, and how big the discrepancy could be in terms of, you know, I, I would say that that, that, that is in, it's logarithmically different. Really, so if you guys were in a position to fund people, say, well, that seems awfully preventative, that seems like OTT. If you just entered a different quantum universe and had that person, let's just say for argument's sake, someone who's admitted to a psychiatric ward for treatment-resistant depression and suicidality, and they're there for a year. Ten years later, the costs to everybody mm. is enormous. Yep. Absolutely And enormous. the quality of life in that period, oh. as we know, is not is not great. So no. the survival rate may be one thing, yeah. Yeah. but surely we want to make sh- you know, the quality of life and, and, and the ability to improve you know, the outlook for the patient mm-hmm. rather than just a survivalist outcome. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is part of what happens in that in in those higher order episodes, which yeah. is just and and to families and communities is, is is debilitating. Yeah, we're not even talking about um, yeah the most superordinate cost. Really, we're just talking about the you know the, the dollars and cents cost, but mm. it's still it's still much bigger. So psychiatric admissions. Are, in terms of, and again, I'm not going to hold you to this. You're not a clinician. You've made that, you know. But <laughs> no, abundantly for, clear. <laughs> from a from a speculative perspective, okay. So so let's someone plays devil advocate. They say yes, yes. Prevention is better than cure. I get it. You know, it would be better if we treated, help people to be, you know, less to deal with their sadness before it became depression or whatever the case may be. And all those conservative voices that are in the privacy of their own heart, sort of going, for fuck's sake, we've been here before. What would you say to the most conservative person who doesn't really believe that prevention of, in principle, it's a good idea, it's a nice idea, but prevention of mental health is not really, it's not going to, the rubber just won't meet the road, It'll, it just it just won't survive contact with reality in any real sense. What, what would you say to someone who is opposed to the notion that this is possible? No, I'd, I'd probably, and this is opinionated, but I'd probably think they haven't actually had an experience with a family member or themselves, because the reality of yeah. of those, and, and a lot of people have, yeah. is is that your awareness is really, really acute when when you see and or experience things firsthand. And I just, I, you know, uh, science and facts for me speak louder than than opinions and 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 uh, and other. Other forums where, where, you know, whilst there needs to be significant debate to allow the diversity of thinking to produce the best result, facts still need to, to you know, lead the way. And uh, the, the reality is there is a tipping point and, and you know, the clinical um, specialists know this, that, that what you can treat and, and, and when your intervention occurs makes a significant difference to long-term outcomes. We can see that now. We don't need to do another 30 or 40 years' worth of study. I, I wonder when you say, Justin, you know, it's like the notion that, well, the, the people who would think that, the only way that you, you can sort of maintain that type of pushback is if you haven't been, you know, personally or viscerally touched by these things. I, I sometimes wonder, is it almost the inverse of that? It's that people who are in positions of power, for want of a better word, who hold those views, it's not that they don't have any, you know, personal exposure to it, it's that they almost have too much, and then whatever way their their temperament means that they can just sort of balkanize themselves from that fact. Mm. So there's an almost unconscious denial that this is a problem, because, you know, <laughs> just if, like the, the politician who has to accept that, you know, there's a mental health crisis amongst their the Australia's youth, simultaneously has to listen to his wife who's shrieking at him saying your daughter has a fucking eating disorder don't go to Canberra this weekend you know so there's a I think that the acknowledgement of this whilst we're talking societal and big numbers and all of these things it is a it is a coagulate of all of the personal journeys 
to realise that we have an issue that we need better tools for. Yeah. <laughs> and it Im- impacts our families and our loved ones. So And probably more gender balance in, in the in, in in that environment too. Yeah, because perhaps, uh, yeah. we we may still have yeah. um, traditional biases to to what our roles are and yeah. and that does not allow the right type of experiences and empathy to 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 appear at the right levels of decision making in in, in society. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, I know that yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite in the yeah. way I say it, but yeah. maybe too many men are thinking, you know, that that's the role, and 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 that might be a problem in itself too in in the structure of thinking. That's the thing which we do need to look at I think societally is to say where is the consistency in this because even if we came to the if if Australian society said en masse and through proper due diligence like you mentioned we've had a look we've had a good hard look at psychedelics they've had their try didn't don't think it's worth it the reasonable people if after that five ten year period where we're hopeful you know I'm obviously hoping they're coming through if they don't but you feel they had a they had a decent run out and they just didn't make the grade I think that didn't happen in the 70s but if it happens this time I would personally say it's certainly not the only modality out there and that conversation needs to be broadened as well mm-hmm. um, there's other emerging therapies or ones that are now coming back to the fore probably because of psychedelics people are more aware of breath work things like that but it just I don't actually have any I'm not married to the to the modality of psychedelics I just want them to have a fair go I suppose yeah. and that's uh, and I think that's a reasonable open minded view and yeah. let the ethical, clinical and medical and academic processes support one way or the other what what, what, what that outcome will be and that's yeah. what we're trying to help very much educate and yeah. you know, bring that information for people to, to absorb it in a fact-based manner. Yeah, I think, I mean, the notion of giving stuff a fair go is probably, you know, if we want to talk about Australian things Great, that fit into the culture, that's pretty much the, you know, the sort of source code of Australia. Yeah, I just don't think go. we should give vaping a fair go. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, we'll come. We'll I'm, more, I'm more worried about the cost that that will produce in 10 to 15 years in yeah. the health system, well, which health insurers will be paying for. I mean, yeah. I, uh, anyway, I'm, I've, I've digressed and gone on too much. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say um, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for being putting your head above the parapet a bit. And um, yeah, I'm actually quite excited I want to be cautious and reasonable, but I am sort of quietly optimistic that as long as we ha- keep having conversations across the board, that this will trundle in, in the right direction. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time. And, and, just and thank generally you. And, and, and like you, I'm hopeful. And uh, if it's meant to be, then that's a positive future. It's not meant to be. We've got to work hard on on finding other areas to, to improve quality of life for, for people that suffer. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks so much for your time, Justin. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Don.